for everyone. 7.8 billion people for 100 million companies for everyone with money on earth and everyone that earns a salary on earth. This is the big idea of the podcast. You have to... I feel like I can rule the world. I know I can be what I want to. I put my all in it like no days off. On the road, let's travel, never look. What's up, everybody? We got a special guest in the house, Michael Saylor. The um, have you heard the nickname they give you on YouTube? The Giga Chad. Have you seen this one? I might have heard it once or twice. <laughs> so, so, Michael, um, Go ahead, Sean. So I was going to ask you, Sam. Have you heard this nickname that they give that they gave Michael Saylor? The crypto, is a, no, the but crypto that's awesome. community, you know, sort of giveth and taketh away. You know, they are extremely passionate and uh, devoted, but they are also, you know, just nuts online. Like my my Twitter mentions are unusable now. I'm sure Michael's are the same, uh, just because of that group. But they are funny also. So they they nicknamed him the Giga Chad because he is sort of like you know, probably the most credible established person and company with MicroStrategy to adopt Bitcoin in a major, major way and really um, is driving the kind of institutional pickup of it. So if you're listening to this, you never heard of Michael Saylor. The reason to listen to this is pretty interesting guy, had a really interesting career, but most notably, uh, in, uh, most known now for basically using his company MicroStrategy and buying about $2 billion worth of Bitcoin, or they own $2 billion worth of Bitcoin, bought about I don't know how much you guys put in half a billion or a billion. No, um, we uh, we bought two point two billion worth of Bitcoin. We own about five, a bit more than five billion, depending upon the day. Wow, more than five billion in Bitcoin. Okay, all right. So- you uh, you you have a for the, not everyone's going to be able to see this, but you have a ship behind you. Right, uh, like a huge. What, what is that? It's an antique, handmade model, a nineteenth-century model of a seventeenth-century galleon. Like uh, I think uh, a model of the Amsterdam, uh, a galleon that sailed out of Amsterdam in the seventeenth century, and it was uh, it was made in the nineteenth century. So it's a very interesting piece are you um are you a car guy i have a bunch of cars but no i'm not a car guy <laughs> what's the coolest one you have i put i put i lean toward suvs i have a bunch of suvs i had a had a, a a lexus convertible that i used to love that i drove a lot but i i don't really drive a lot so you can give, so you can give sam a grade sam just sold his company came into a bunch of money and he bought what what did you buy sam Okay, so I was driving it all this weekend, and I've been getting made fun of. I can't believe people are making fun of me. Do you know what an AMG station wagon is? Like a Mercedes AMG? I can imagine. (laughs) Okay, so basically there's Mercedes, which is everyone knows Mercedes. And then there's AMG, which is like a subsidiary. And they basically put race car engines into cars. Um, And I bought this. But the problem about fast cars and cool cars is that they're like super unpractical mostly. And... But I wanted something that was like kind of fast and fun to drive, but I wanted it to be more practical. And there's this thing called an AMG E63 wagon. It's a station wagon. It looks like a mom car, except you can put your dog in the back and it has five seats, and it, but it still goes zero to 60 in three seconds. So I bought a souped up <laughs> station wagon, like the one of the fastest cars on the road, but it's a station wagon. That's my that's currently what well, I'm driving right now. Whatever works for you. Well, I was looking for someone to geek out on it, but 
Yeah, I guess that you're you're I would have I for some reason I pegged you as a car guy, but I guess I'm wrong. I, um I'm more into boats and planes than cars. What do you what 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 does that mean if you're into planes? Uh, well, I I like I like aircraft because if an aircraft can go Mach 89 or Mach 85, you're allowed to legally fly it that fast. Whereas what is Mach 8? Car, like 2,000 miles an hour? No. <laughs> Mach 85 would be like, like, uh, like 500 knots like or something like that. So the point is like airplanes can fly at their full speed and, and yachts or boats can go at their full speed over the water. But uh, an automobile that could go 160 miles an hour, you don't very often get to do that legally. So, so... I like vehicles that you can operate at their design point legally and safely. Well, what it's, planes it's do you have? Feeling as an engineer, I have a Global Express XRS. Fucking a. <laughs> um. All right, it's time for a little ad break. I got to tell you about HubSpot's HubSpot for Startups program. So if you're a startup and you're trying to grow, this thing is pretty great. You get a huge discount, 30 to 90% off on a tool that your whole sales and marketing team can use to help you scale as you grow. We use this in our companies. I think you should too. They have tons of resources. They got great customer support, tons of integration with popular apps that you use. You got to check it out. So it's the HubSpot for Startups program. You can check it out at HubSpot.com slash startups. Before we get into Bitcoin stuff, and because Sean's been talking about you for like a year now, because uh, he was following a micro strategy and, and all that, but um, you own a, a ton of domain names, right? Yeah, I bought a bunch. Like, h- how many do you own now? Or how many well, have I you mean, owned? I, I won't count all that. I mean, I own hundreds and hundreds, but the ones that are our top level primary domain names, about 16. Like uh, like words in the English language that everybody understands. Like I own Emma, uh, Frank. I own my own name. I own Michael.com. I also own my nickname, Mike.com. Uh, so like my personal website, I've, I've got it on Michael.com. You just type Michael.com, you see all the stuff about me. Uh, Hope. Yeah, Sam, go, go to Hope.com. See where that takes you. Go to hope.com. Yeah, well, actually, Bitcoin is hope. So if you type hope.com, you'll get everything there is to know about Bitcoin. Oh, my god! Because I actually repath hope to all of our Bitcoin resources and materials. Uh, so speaker. I, I owned voice.com, and I sold it for $30 million a couple of years ago. That's the largest uh, naked domain sale in the history of domains tell, tell the Who tell owns? the short version of that story the, the story is kind of crazy i've heard it once before but i, I would assume sam and mo- most people have not heard the story of selling voice.com mm-hmm. you bought all these early on in the web you kind of recognized oh these are these are probably going to be valuable to own these names there's only one you know there's only one owner of each of these names you you own it and you hold it for a really long time like over a decade and uh at some point, you decide, okay, maybe we should see if somebody wants to buy some of these. So tell the story of SellingVoice.com real quick. Well, yeah, we, I bought all these domains because I thought, wouldn't it be great to own a part of the English language? I mean, owning Hope or own, owning Voice. I mean, eventually there'll be a Google Voice or there'll be you know, some, some telco company that'll want to launch some service. And what a great domain on, uh, to launch on, the, on a word like Voice.com. 
so we held them a long time. And, and uh, I think at some point we were looking for joint ventures. We were looking to commercialize them. And we did commercialize a bunch. For example, I created a company called Alarm.com. And Alarm.com is now publicly traded on NASDAQ. It's like four or $5 billion market cap company. And, and you can guess what it does. It actually integrates your home alarm into the internet. You know, and I created another company called Angel.com, and we sold that for a bit more than $100 million. And that was actually a speech, an interactive voice response like Surrey or Alexa before Surrey and Alexa came along. And uh, so I had voice, and I was holding it, and we were looking for some kind of good uh, commercialization. And someone out of the blue, they contacted us, uh, one of the domain brokers, and they said, well, you know, do you want to sell it? We'll give you 150000 and, uh, and I, you know, I was like, I, someone came to me and said, they offered 150,000. I said, no. So I thought nothing of it because I just, I couldn't see the point. A week later, they come back and said, well, they doubled it to 300,000. I said, tell them no. So a couple of days later, they go, well, the broker's really insistent. Uh, and so they went to 600,000. I said, no. So they said, well, what should you say? I said, don't tell anything. Tell them, you know, like we're not interested. It's got to be something serious. So they went to 1.2 million. I said, tell them no. I said, well, they want to know what you want for it. I said, um, well, send them a note or something and just tell them. I said, it's like, it's, it's the word voice in the English language, right? So, it's going to have to be something, you know, north of, uh, I don't know. I don't think I said seven or eight, eight figures, but I just said a lot of money. Um, and so it went on and they doubled again to two and a half million. And then, uh, and then uh, 5 million and then around 10 million. Then I said, they said, I had like 18 people in my office. They're like, or not eight, but eight, eight people. They're like looking at me like, aren't you, are you going to take the money? It's like a lot of money now. I said, uh, no, send them back. Uh, at this point, send them back an, a note pointing out that this is like the word voice in the English language. And it's, and it's, it's worth a billion dollars to the right company. And, uh, they said, well, you're going to give them a response. I said, uh, Okay, tell them 30 million. Tell them I'll take 30 million for it. Because I thought, like, if I didn't give them some number, they would stop negotiating after, a, you know, five no's. So I said, tell them 30 million. I don't want to sell it for 30 million. I want to sell it for 100 million or more, but I guess I'll say 30 million. So, that, so at that point, they said, well, you know, they offered you, I think they upped their, their offer to like um, 12 million. I said, tell them, uh, no, but if you want, I'll, I'll take a meeting with them. So when it got to 12 million, I said I'd get on the phone for half an hour. So then we got on the phone and the call started with someone saying, well, how about 22 million? And I said, um, let me explain. This is like my daughter. Like I'm willing to, I'm willing to like marry her off, but only to a man that values her more than I value her. So I value this domain, you know, at 30 million. <laughs> and so if you don't want to give me the 30, 
you know, I'm going to regret after I sell it anyway. I'll have seller's remorse, but I would I would do it just to make the market. But if you don't want to value it at 30, I'll just keep it. And they're like, uh, okay, we'll give you 30. I said, okay. <laughs> so 30, so, you went, you got a 30 from 100K. So they did like double seven or eight times. And I eventually, <laughs> they started 150K, I think. And we ended it. And I said 30, we ended it at 30. But but the point was, I didn't really need the money. It was a matter like if I had at the point maybe six hundred million in cash in the bank, and the company, the MicroStrategy was is a multi-billion-dollar company. So I was like, a million is not going to move the needle for me. A hundred thousand is not going to move the needle for me. Five, ten million is not going to move the needle one way or the other. So there's no point in doing it unless it was something material. Were you all, like? You know, the eight people in your office were were they like your coworkers or? Uh, I mean, well, it's business development. The people that wanted the commission on the deal, you know. So, Basically. like any any most it's like it's a big every... deal, right? They want to like do the deal, and and the only way you get thirty million is to like say no to twenty two million, right? And well, like any else. reasonable, most reasonable people. Which the reason you are where you are is you're many would probably consider you not reasonable, right? I mean, you have you're 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 an extreme personality type, and that's why you, you're very successful. But any reasonable person would say, "What are you, an idiot? Like you paid uh, nothing for this. Take it." Were you? But were you always that? Like uh, my, my always- view on it is that the English language is going to be important to the human race for a thousand years, and in a thousand years from now, voice will probably still have value. Just like a lot of like hope, it's a valuable word forever. I mean, until you murder everyone that speaks the English language, if you think about how valuable it is, my my real view is is I think people are are crazy for spending hundreds of millions of dollars on ad campaigns to market a brand that's a misspelling of a normal word. It's like I got to convince you how to sell injunction stuff <laughs> with like two Y's and a Z, you know. And I'm like, why would you do that? Because in the modern era of spell checkers, when you try to type these crappy brands that are misspelled, you know, your iPhone unspells it for you or properly spells it. So try going to a website that's a misspelling of a name. Most brands and most brand consultants, I just disagree with them all. They, you know, they charge you a lot of money to come up with a misspelling of a common word, and then you spend half a billion dollars marketing the brand. A much better idea would be buy the word hope or angel or alarm or alert or or voice. Even if you got to pay a hundred million or two hundred million or five hundred million dollars. Because if I see your your ad and you tell me that you know your brand is alert.com, I can remember it in one second. I can spell it in one second. You leap immediately to the top of the Google search engine. So I just I, I always view domains as being undervalued. And then mark people spend hundreds of millions of dollars of going crappy marketing to send someone to a place they can't spell that they can't remember. I think the world will gradually come around to that point of view, but they're not there yet. But that, so that was my view. Like, I didn't want to sell it, to tell you the truth. <laughs> like, if you owned the word angel or the word alarm or the word hope or voice, like the truth is Google should have paid a billion dollars for the word voice. 
I mean, if they're going to try to launch a voice service, it's worth it to them. And eventually, you know, what you're going to see is Apple, Amazon, Facebook, Google are just going to keep generating more money. But the word voice or the word hope or, the, you know, fill in the blank, any kind of positive, uh, positive, easy to spell short word in the English language is going to be an awesome place to build a brand. All right, everyone, a quick break, because I want to fill you in on a little experiment that I'm doing. I've got a new project. It's called MoneyWise. It's a personal finance podcast for high net worth people or young people who are on their way to becoming high net worth. When I made a little bit of money, I didn't even know how much money I should be spending each month. Should it be 10000 30000 50000 And I didn't really have a lot of people to ask. So I created a podcast called MoneyWise because I wanted to figure out what are some of the things that people who have a lot of cash and who have a high net worth, what do they do with it? The first episode is with a friend of mine. He sold his company for $200 million when he was 31 years old. He gets super transparent about his monthly expenses, his portfolio, how it impacts his happiness, everything. And so I want you guys to check it out. It's called Money Wise. That's one word. You can find it on my Twitter bio. I'm the Sam Parr. Or you can just type in Money Wise on Apple, Spotify, and YouTube. All right, back to the pod. Hey, let's take a quick break to tell you about the HubSpot Podcast Network. If you like podcasts like this, you should check out some other cool podcasts. One is called Business Made Simple. It's hosted by Donald Miller and it's brought to you by the HubSpot Podcast Network. And what he does is he makes it easy to take the mystery out of growing your business. There's an episode that you should check out called What You Should Put in a Job Description to Get the Perfect Hire. And in this episode, Donald Miller looks at the whole hiring process and how important it is to emphasize both the, the positive attributes and the drawbacks to future candidates. And you'll learn why being self-aware as a leader will help you avoid hiring disasters. So check it out. Go listen to Business Made Simple wherever you get your podcasts. And so right now, it looks like you own or you owned or, or you I currently own strategy. Own, or you, I own yeah, a so work. strategy, wisdom.com, alarm.com, angel.com, AA alert, courage, mike.com, voice.com, usher.com, hope, speaker.com, Michael, Mike, Sailor.org. So you own a bunch of them. Yeah. And so, and so my view is like, like trying to sell them. I, I got 20 Picassos and I wanted the world of market to value Picassos. So I sell the first one for 30 million, but the next one I want 100 million for, or I, or I really want, you know, someone to create a, a billion dollar business with me on that. Right. That's the right way to think of it. And I mean, I, Look at it this way: How many people have learned that have learned to speak English on Earth? What is that number? Two billion, maybe. Yep. How many How many years of your life do you learn? Do you spend learning English? I mean, a typical person spends takes English ten years, like from kindergarten through twelve, maybe twelve years. But let's say that we shorten it. Two billion people spend four years of their life, and that's eight billion years of time spent figuring out how to spell and type your brand. What's the if you value the eight billion years at twenty dollars an hour? That's one hundred and sixty billion dollars worth of money spent teaching people that hope is a good thing, <laughs> right? What's it worth? Like, what's it worth? Like, to have a brand which is universally understood and easy to spell that's burned into the head of billions of people. You know, you couldn't have, you're going to go and buy advertising to convince them that H O O P E is a good thing, Hopi, or something. Like, not really. So I, I think that, um, 
they're just good investments. They're scarce real estate in cyberspace, and they'll always be good. And the world undervalues them. But in time, like when I tell you alarm.com, you can remember alarm. You can go type alarm. When you get off this podcast, anybody that wants to go check out what alarm.com does, they don't have to go and like look it up and sort through 197,000 Google search pages to figure out which one is the one that Sailor was talking about. Yep. My friend uh, started calm, calm.com, the meditation app. And uh, the, the first thing he did was just get the domain, basically. And uh, he decided early on, all right, I'm going to build a brand around the feeling of being calm. And it took the form of a meditation app, but he sort of decided up front what it was going to be and ha- got that domain and really like had to negotiate to get it. And it was, you know, these domain negotiations go prolonged, but, but definitely another, uh, I don't know, success story of that, that path. And I'll remember it too, by the way. Like, like what you just said, you just pitched me on an idea. I'll get off and if some, off this podcast and if four weeks from now, someone asks you, so what was that meditation business thing? I'll be like, C-A-L-M.com. Right. Hopefully they got the right spelling of it, right? Yeah. No, there's three L's. No, I'm just joking. It's the, it's the right one. Um, yeah. All right. So let's, let's talk it about, works. let's talk about something else. So you, you, uh, you've been in the game for a while. I think you might be, how long have you been? The, you've been like the CEO of MicroStrategy for what, 30 years almost? Since 1989. So 31 years. Right. I've been the public company CEO since 1998. I think Sam was born in 1989. Public company. Yeah, you, you've been the you've been a publicly traded company or a public CEO longer than I've been alive. <laughs> and so, uh, and you've kind of had some ups and downs. So, I I saw an interview of you on Charlie Rose. Um, you know, you were looking like Tom Cruise. You go on Charlie Rose, and they're you're flying high. You're a 34 year old guy who took the company public. I think MicroStrategy was worth 11 billion dollars or something at that point. And, uh, and best of all, I think you owned half of it or maybe a little bit more than half of the company. And so you're, you know, a 34 year old billionaire. And I think, you know, a few years later, the stock price crashed pretty dramatically. Uh, but you, I think there's two kind of remarkable things. A, I want to hear what was it like to be in that position and then face that crash? And then B, how the hell did you keep your job? Was it because you owned a controlling stake in the company? Because most CEOs cannot survive a stock price crash from 300 something dollars a share to under 50 cents a share. How did that happen? You know, I think if, you, if you're in business long enough, you're going to have setbacks. And, you know, you can't let the setbacks crush your spirit or, or, or cause you to stop thinking and stop innovating and stop growing. So, I mean, they're humbling. Uh, well, we, we all kind of know enough, that's the right answer. That. But like when Sorry? we all kind of know that's the right answer, like, hey, setbacks happen. You got to pick yourself up. And that's true. And everybody sort of agrees. But when it does happen, what like, do you remember what that felt like, what the day was when 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 you're experiencing this crash? What were you thinking as it was happening? It's not pleasant. <laughs> it's not pleasant. But, you know, you have to move on. Right. You have You have to focus. You have responsibilities. <laughs> okay. And you were, you were talking about at one point, you're like, all right, when I was selling this domain, when did you sell that domain name? How many years ago? Um, two years ago, maybe. Okay. So not that long ago, actually. But you were saying like, well, we had, I had $600 million in cash. We, the company was doing great. Why continue staying as the CEO when it seems like you're incredibly... I mean, Bitcoin seems like you're one of your main 
top two focuses next to MicroStrategy. Why not just focus entirely on that as opposed to continuing continuing to run this business? Well, first of all, the the business has two strategies, and the first strategy is we sell business intelligence software to our customers, and the second strategy is we acquire and hold Bitcoin. That is the business. Got it. And um, and and if you look at what we've done, we um, we bought uh, two hundred fifty million dollars worth of Bitcoin that we had generated as a publicly traded company. So without the business, we couldn't have bought the first 250 million of Bitcoin. And that required, you know, an intricate set of, of um, due diligence and disclosures. Then we did a Dutch tender offer, but basically it's an, an equity offering of sorts. If you could think of it that way, but we did a, we did a, um, a reverse Dutch auction and with the res- at the end of that point, we bought another 175 million worth of Bitcoin, and so that's another thing you have to have to be a public company to do. Then we swept our cash flows as a public company into Bitcoin. We bought 50 million more Bitcoin, and uh, without the company, couldn't have done it. Then we did a convertible debt offering for 650 million dollars of debt at 75 basis points. And without being a public company, we couldn't have done that one either. We bought Bitcoin and then it went up again. And then we did, we bought some more with cash flow. And then we did a billion dollar debt offering. And we did that billion dollar convert offering at 0% interest. You couldn't have done that without being a public company. So there are benefits to being a public company. Public companies are credible. They're really the gold standard as a counterparty, right? I mean, it, there's 100 million companies in the world. There's only about 4,000 publicly traded companies on U.S. listed exchanges. So it's a very, very rare thing. You have to go through a huge amount of, um, of compliance. You know, we're, we're filing 10 Qs, 10 Ks. We've got a lot of, uh, a lot of uh, compliance architecture, security architecture. I'm signing Sarbanes-Oxley uh, statements you know, every quarter, right? We're responsible for FCPA, you know, et cetera, responsibility. So that gives, um, that gives investors comfort with a publicly traded company. So probably the most important thing to, to take away from the podcast is Bitcoin is an exploding, uh, asset class it's it's really a it's it's the greatest treasury reserve asset of our lifetimes and it's the solution to every company's treasury problem so if you have a corporation that has capital or generates cash flow you can immediately double or improve the value of the company or dramatically enhance the value of the company simply by changing your treasury policy so if you, if you, you take you a company with, with cash and you invest in Bitcoin, you have, invest, you have converted a liability to an asset. And so, so I was enhancing the value of the company by pursuing the Bitcoin strategy. They go together. They're synergistic. So let's let's lay out the the kind of the context for people who ha- who don't know exactly how it all played out because I would say in our audience right we're going to get about 300 400,000 listeners this month and in that audience probably 
you know, 5% are as crazy about Bitcoin as me um, and have put like, you know, you know, a a huge chunk of their net worth into Bitcoin. And then, you know, 50% are curious and 50% are novices, let's say, you know, just roughly rounding things out. And so just to put it into context, MicroStrategy is this couple billion dollar public company. It's been around for a while, has a good track record, has a business selling enterprise software. You generate a ton of cash. Your business spits off cash. You have about 500, 600 million. I'm just using fuzzy numbers. Specifics don't matter. You use about 500, 600 million dollars of cash. That's your treasury for your company. And you're looking for something to do with it. And at some point, you realize you have this treasury problem. And, um, And you're not alone. Actually, all companies have this treasury problem, whether they are aware of it or not. So can you describe the treasury problem that you experienced and you experienced it at a $500 million level, but anybody, including an individual with $500,000 or you know, $100,000 in the bank has the same fundamental problem. So explain the treasury problem as you saw it a few years ago or yeah, a year ago. The, the treasury problem is that subsequent to March, 2020, the cost of capital exploded from 8% to 25%. And uh, you can see that in the performance of the S&P 500 index, which went from about 8% a year for a decade to more than 25% in that next year. That means that anybody investing money on behalf of a, of a limited partner or any other investor has to generate that cost of capital in order to avoid destroying wealth. If you, inv- if you generated less than a 8% yield for the decade from 2010 to 2020 as a financial advisor, you destroyed wealth because the alternative was just to buy the SPY index. If you generated less than 25% from March of 2020 onward, you destroyed wealth because you could have made 25%, actually a bit more, depending on what day of the week you measure it or what day of the year you measure it. You could have generated that much just by owning the index. Now, um, the the treasury problem is that when the cost of capital is zero, um, it's if, by the way, the cost of capital is being driven by the expansion of the money supply. The Federal Reserve is expanding the M2 money supply by about 5 to 6% a year for that decade. And when you tack on the risk premium, you get to your 8% S&P return. When the, when the Federal Reserve expands the M2 money supply by 20 to 25%, that's where you get that explosion in the cost of capital. The inflation doesn't show up in consumer goods. The inflation immediately shows up in assets. We have asset inflation. Within minutes of when uh, the central bank uh, decides to stimulate the economy, the price of all the assets explodes. Um, And so the problem for every company, all 100 million companies in the world, every private company, every public company, the problem is you have capital in your treasury And that capital has to yield the cost of capital. And if it doesn't, you're destroying shareholder value. Another way to say it is, if you generate cash and you put it into the bank account to pay zero interest, and if if the cost of everything you want to buy goes up by 10% a year, in seven years, you only be able to buy half as much. You've lost half of the value of your savings. When that discount rate or that cost of capital doubles, well, then in three and a half years, you've lost half your money. At a 25% cost of capital, in three years, you've lost half your wealth. So the treasury problem is 
the cost of capital has exploded. And the cost of capital, as it goes through the roof, puts every company in a quandary. They either have to decapitalize and give all of their assets back to their shareholders because they can't... If Sam is controlling an investment company that invests in dollars, and you are running an investment company that invests in the S&P 5 index, and I gave each of you a million, and Sam proudly tells me how he didn't lose my money, and you tell me you made 25% return, I'm pulling all my money out of Sam's fund, and I'm putting it into your fund. So ultimately, the, the problem is the company sitting on capital, if it can't meet the cost of capital, it has to give the money back to the shareholders, or at least it's under extreme political pressure from the share. Everybody's beating you up as CEO saying, what are you doing with all that cash? You should just pay a dividend or you should buy the stock back. And, um, and the second pressure you have is if you run a company and your cash flows are growing at 8% a year, but the cost of capital is 25% a year, that means that I'm discounting you at a rate that's higher than your growth rate. In essence, the value of your stock is going to be forecast to go to zero. You can't hold value in a company growing at 5% a year when the cost of capital is 25% a year. That's why the only thing you can buy is going to be a high tech stock that's growing. You need to buy a tech monopoly that can grow 20 or 25% a year. And if you come to me with a business idea for a company which makes a lot of cash or, or is, makes a lot of money, but is growing 2% a year or 1% a year, I'm just not interested in a high cost of capital environment. So the problem we faced in March is what do we do? Give all the money back to the shareholders or can we find something to invest in that, that's going to actually generate more than 25% return? And that puts us to a question. So what we did, in essence, was split the difference. You know, if, if I was in a situation, in the ideal situation, you would just buy 500 million worth of Bitcoin and put out a press release and do it. But if you did that, that would be such a shock to the outside shareholders that the fear would be, well, is someone going to sue us or dump the stock because you were so aggressive because they'll claim that you took a risk that you didn't disclose? So our response is, let's disclose everybody, we're about to take a risk. And after that, let's go ahead and take a risk. But at the same time, let's give everybody an insurance policy. So we, we offered to buy back $250 million worth of the stock in this Dutch auction. So if you disagree with the decision to buy Bitcoin, you can sell the stock back at a, at a profit. Our stock was 120. We offered to buy uh, the stock back at up to 140. And so we cushioned the blow of the investment strategy by giving people an exit strategy from the equity. Right. That rotates the shareholder base. And then we began to pursue the Bitcoin strategy as a primary treasury reserve asset with, uh, with a different shareholder base. So let me ask you a question. Now, yeah. I, I like the analogy or the, the kind of the awareness that, hey, we have this giant bowl of ice cream that's melting. That's, that's your cash pile that's melting. And the heat is basically the money printer that is uh, causing asset inflation. An ice cube that's melting. An ice we cube have a $500 melting. million dollar ice cube and it's melting 20% a year. Right. And It'll so, be gone in five. So you needed to do something with that. You didn't want it to all melt away. So you decided to do this. Now, a couple of quick questions. One is, 
Uh, this is sort of rapid fire. I've got a couple rapid fire questions for you. Yeah. In 20 years from now, what do you think has generated more value uh, or more income to the company, uh, to MicroStrategy? Is it the operating income of MicroStrategy or the investment income of the Bitcoin it holds? The investment income for sure. Okay. And then- uh, uh, you know, to, be, to be very clear, what happened in March of 2020 is when the cost of capital goes to 25%, that means that every investor and all investment income, every every investor generated 25% more doing nothing. Right. And every Main Street company that worked 25% harder got nothing. Right. Right. You literally tilt the playing field so that if you don't own, if you own assets, you're having the best year of a 30 years. And if you don't own assets, it's impossible to have a good year. And um, and so so the second question is, um, you uh, as you acquire as you acquire more and more Bitcoin, is MicroStrategy bet like? Do you just position the company at this point like it's a Bitcoin ETF? It's like buy this buy this Bitcoin no, buying a, and holding company. It's not a Bitcoin ETF. Everybody, you're sloppy with those words. An ETF is a, a company that invests in securities. And it tries to keep its assets under management equal to the amount of shares of ETF that it sold. It's a financial company. An ETP is a similar type of company that invests in commodities. If you create, you know, if you create this Bitcoin entity that, uh, that, that equalizes assets under management equal to the shares you sell, you created a Bitcoin ETP. We're neither of those things. We're not a finance company. We're not an ETF. We're not an ETP. We're not, equal, we're not buying or selling Bitcoin to equalize assets under management. We're uh, an operating company that owns property. Bitcoin is property. And in that way, you should think of it as a company that, like I, I bought a million acres of land in Texas or I bought um, a million gallons of, of fill in the blank, a, a, a million bushels of soybean. You can buy any kind of property, right? right? And, and you're holding it on your balance sheet as a company, right? That's what we, uh, that's what we are. Now, what's your question? You are talking about like, let's say the, the cost of capital uh, being 25%, right? Because yeah. since March, that's what the S&P 500 has done. But the the stock market goes, you know, it does go up and down in years where, you know, the market dips and, and goes up, you know, the average, you know, over time, the geometric mean is whatever, seven or 8%, something like that. So do, some would argue, okay, yes, this year assets inflated by that much. That doesn't mean next year it's going to remain at 25% a year. Um, and so you have to make some prediction, right? And so are you are you basically forecasting it at 25%, 15%, 10%, 8%? And does the decision change at a certain number there? So so gen first of all, for the decade from 2010 to 2020, it was generally about 8%. Like it was, it was pretty consistent. And the single biggest driver of cost of capital is the rate at which the broad money supply expands. <clears throat> and if you look at, if you go Google... M2 money supply fed, you'll get a chart and you'll see the chart. By the way, the chart's not all over the place. The chart is very consistent 7% slope for a decade. It's not jerking around. So it's not that volatile. It was very consistent monetary policy for a decade. Then that chart goes like this straight up 24%. So if, you, uh, if, if you're going to make a decision as an investor, 
and this is any investor. What it, this this has to do? This applies to all four hundred trillion dollars worth of investors, and applies to every company on earth. They all have the same exact thing they have to calculate, which is you have to estimate the rate at which the money supply will expand each year for the next eight years. And so that's the if you want to figure out the signal or or the single most important thing in the world for everyone, but for everyone, 7.8 billion people for 100 million companies for everyone with money on earth and everyone that earns a salary on earth. This is the big idea of the podcast. You have to estimate the rate at which the currency is going to expand. And if you believe the currency is going to continue to expand at 15% a year for the next eight years, you come to one conclusion. If you plug in 10%, it's a different conclusion. If it's 25%, it's a different conclusion. So uh, what do I think? Um, I think that... um, 15% is 15% for the next eight years is reasonable. Um, if you're a pessimist, you could say 20. If you're an optimist, you could say 10. But um, the money supply is expanding because the Federal Reserve and the EU Central Bank are buying a trillion dollars worth of um, bonds every year each. And it's also expanding because uh, the go- the government of the EU and the US are running a multi-trillion dollar deficit. And it is also expanding because of trillion dollar plus stimulus. And there's no reason to think that's going to change in the next four years. And uh, I don't think in the next eight years. I think I think that at the point that the Democrats took control of the Senate and the House, you saw that you have... Um, if you could have you could have forecasted twelve percent inflation if it was a uh, if it was a split government, but I think that in a in a in a uh, a non split government there seems to be remarkable consensus that we should run deficits, continue to keep interest rates low, and continue to stimulate the economy. So what does that mean? If you plug in a number fifteen percent, it means that the risk-free interest rate or the the risk-free return is fifteen percent. It means you have to generate in excess of fifteen percent on your money every year for the next four years in order to stay ahead of the rate of asset inflation. A reasonable person would say the assets are going to inflate at that rate. That's that's pretty much what they do. That means that. If your company is not growing its cash flows you know, at a 20% rate, then it's not going to hold value as a stock. It means that if your bond is paying you an interest rate of less than 15%, you're destroying value in the bond. If your rent yield is less than 15%, your commercial real estate's destroying value. And if you're holding cash, you're losing 15% of it a year. That's That's the negative real yield. So... Once you actually uh, embrace the idea of asset inflation, and asset inflation equals cost of capital equals the rate of the money supply expansion, once you have that rate, then you realize that there's a negative real real yield on everything except for Bitcoin for the most part. The negative real yield on gold is 3%. That's the rate at which we mine it or hypothecate it. The negative real yield on sovereign debt is about 12%, 13%. The negative real yield on corporate debt is 
every company that's got a growth rate of less than 15% has got a negative real yield on it. So, you know, once you do that, then you can, then what you realize is you can't really have a business strategy as a company unless you find a way to solve the treasury problem. So the big idea here is you want to fix any company, sweep all the cash flows into Bitcoin, convert the treasury into Bitcoin, borrow against your future cash flows in dollars, convert that into Bitcoin, finance all your fixed assets in dollars, convert that into Bitcoin, and issue equity as much as you can now at the highest valuation you can now in dollars and invest in Bitcoin. Right. And, and you might say, why Bitcoin? Well, because Bitcoin is the apex property. It's the most scarce monetary asset in the universe. You can't make any more of it. It's encrypted money. And, and what that means is it's least likely to be impaired by a property tax and execution issue, um, money printing, dilution counterparty risk and corruption. So we have we have engineered a superior asset, a thermodynamically sound, technically superior asset. It's placed on a global digital monetary network, which is open, an open protocol. And the combination of the the, the apex asset on the open monetary system makes it the um the most disruptive technology in the world. When you were first starting MicroStrategy, you were you were in the weeds. You were thinking, I have to make a product that solves a problem and I, I have to make money off of it, right? Now, you've gone way up the hierarchy of... Now we can do whatever we want. Now you can do whatever you want. At yeah. what point did you notice a shift like, oh my gosh, like this business is stable. It's working, it's working pretty well. Uh, yeah, it's quite predictable. At what point did that shift happen? Because what you're talking about now is quite look, foreign think, to what... I think we... Look, we solved our problem when we actually embraced Bitcoin. Like, I, I, I could say to you, oh, yeah, well, when I had $500 million in cash in the bank, I could. And we were focused. But the problem with that is that if you have a bunch of cash generating zero interest, the cost of capital goes to 25%. Then all the public company investors forsake the company, and if the stock if the, if the stock market forsakes the company, then mainstream media forsakes the company, right? Then the employees become dejected because eventually you're going to have Facebook, Amazon, Apple, or Google steal every one of your employees if you can't drive the stock up, right? N nobody wants to invest in a company that makes a lot of money growing at five percent a year. I mean, it's, it seems brutal to say that, it, it, but it wouldn't be true if the cost of capital was zero. If we had a sound money policy in this country, then you could hold your head up high and say, I run this great restaurant and we made a lot of money last year. We're going to make a lot of money this year. And our plan is to keep doing what we've been doing. And everybody would pat you on the back and say, that's good. That's honorable. But if... The, if I tell you I'm going to devalue the, the cash by 25% a year or 20% a year, at some point, you're driven into this cycle where I have to either do a big acquisition to keep my revenues growing 
I, I have to take extreme risk and do dilutive acquisitions, or I have to go borrow billions of dollars to buy the stock back to leverage up the cash flow per share. And if I don't do either of those things, the investors dump the stock. And if they dump the stock, the employees start feeling like, you know, why don't they go work someplace cool and hot? And you're going to get all your engineers stripped away by Facebook or, or Amazon or something. So the truth is, when we actually fix the balance sheet, we fix the stock. And we fix the, you know, at this point, the company has $5 billion, more than $5 billion in assets. If the, if the cost of capital remains at, let, let's say it goes up 20%, if, if we print 20% more money next year, I can reasonably expect to generate a billion dollars of investment income, which would be a you know 20% increase in Bitcoin, right? But the truth is, I can reasonably expect better than that. If uh, the cost of capital is 10, I can reasonably expect 500 million investment income. Well, all 2,000 people doing 100,000 things right perfectly for the entire year, competing against Microsoft that has more money than God, they can generate 75 million a year. Okay, so, so the truth is the company, its future became secure when we actually converted the balance sheet to Bitcoin because now we don't have to struggle. Let me say it a different way. I don't think any company could be successful without a financial strategy in the year 2021. Like I wouldn't have said it three, four years ago. If you have a sound money macroeconomic environment where the money supply is expanding at two or 3% a year, you can go out and make things and create things and market things and sell things and service things and generate cash with that. And then, uh, and that makes sense. But if the money supply is expanding at 20% a year, you need to own assets because, because what's happening is no one's going to invest in any project that doesn't generate more than the 20% hurdle rate. And so what, who can generate consistently risk-free 20% returns? You have to be a monopoly. You have to have a digital monopoly or some kind of monopoly. So it becomes exponentially harder to grow. And, what, and so what happens next? All these other companies get, get squeezed out of the ecosystem, right? Get, they get decapitalized and rendered insolvent by, by the monetary policy. So I, w- I would say that, you know, if I can get my, st- my stock was $120 a share, what is it right now? Like, uh, I haven't checked in the market. But- 768 Okay. So if I if I get my stock up, then I can actually make my shareholders happy. I can change the narrative. I can recruit. I can retain talent. I can get that, you know, I can inspire the confidence of my customers. I can I can drive momentum. And then we can do what we want to do. I guess it's it's similar to if you're a university and you had no endowment, you know, and or a university that has a billion dollar endowment or a university that has a hundred billion dollar endowment, you know, if you're a professor, which university do you want to work for? If you're a student, where do you want to go? You know, do you, what, do you have a shiny building coming or not? Right at, at the end of the day, right, money is a measure of energy, 
And so if you have monetary assets, you have energy, and if you have high energy, you can pursue your vision you know, with integrity. And what percentage of your time now are you spending on this, on investing the income versus on the day-to-day of micro strategy of just the, the business as usual, making the products that making business intelligence products versus investing the, the income? Um, I'm, I'm the CEO, but we have a president and the president of the company is Fong Lee. And he actually has day-to-day operational responsibility for sales, marketing, and even technology development at this point. So I'm the chairman and the CEO. I, I oversee the company strategy and I oversee the, I, I oversee financial strategies. I oversee long-term direction and I, and I oversee technology strategy, but I'm not I'm not in the weeds in the day-to-day running the business. That's really left for the operating executive team. So um, about a year ago, I tweeted out that I had moved 25% of my uh, net worth into Bitcoin, which has now become like, I don't know, 50 plus percent almost. Um, and a friend called me, our friend who comes on this podcast, named Andrew Wilkinson, very successful business guy. He's got a public company in, in Canada now, uh, sort of has... He owns businesses that are worth about a, over a billion over a billion dollars, and he called me and he was just like, "Hey, I just want to make sure you know what you're doing here." And you know, uh, like a, a concerned friend, and and he comes from like kind of the Warren Buffett, uh, you know, he's a Warren Buffett disciple, and famously Buffett and Munger, you know, Charlie Munger called Bitcoin uh, rat poison, and then Buffett called it rat poison squared, and so you get really intelligent people um, who are well respected for what they've done. Um, Talking about Bitcoin. So first, what's your reaction to the Buffett opinion on Bitcoin? I think everybody's captured by their frame of reference. Warren Buffett, would would you agree that Warren Buffett, for the most part, made money investing in stocks? Yeah, in non-technology stocks primarily. And, and And maybe overseeing operating companies. How successful would he have been if he did that in Nigeria or let's say Zimbabwe? Or Argentina for the past fifteen years, or Venezuela, not not like very that well. Strategy wouldn't have worked, right? For example, there is no strategy that would work if you were a business person in Zimbabwe when the currency collapsed. And if you look at the Argentine blue dollar, uh, the Argentine dollar, the Argentine peso actually used to be worth a dollar, and then it was worth, and then it was three pesos to the dollar. Today, it's on the black market. They call it the blue market. It's worth about 150 pesos to the dollar. If you live in a world where you just, let's just start by assuming the currency is strong and we have no problem with that and that stocks are going to work. And then let's talk about our investment strategy. Well, if you you live in that world and and you can make those assumptions, great. But what if the currency weakens at 15% a year for the next decade? Then, um, then your strategy doesn't work. So I, I think that for the most part, the world's full of successful people, but there's two things they're missing. One, they're, they're assuming optimistically that, um, that in the United States and Western Europe, um, whatever currency challenges we have, whatever weakness of the currency we have will be rapidly re- rectified. They're either in denial, like for, here's how you'll know. Ask someone that's an investor how they did last year. If they're honest, they'll say, oh, 
all my, you know, the dollar crashed and all my stocks are up 20 to 50% because the dollar's weaker. And, and if they tell you, oh, I had a great year, all my, my portfolio is up 37% or 50% because I'm a genius stock picker, right? That's how you interpret the world. Is the dollar weakening or is the market getting better, right? And, um, so there's a lot of people that, that have been successful in their frame of reference. And so they just attribute the virtuous activity of, you know, their virtuous stock picking or their virtuous business strategy for their success. Right. And then they wonder why everybody else can't be like them. Right. Right. And then I think the second part of this is Bitcoin is paradigm shift. It's the first time in the history of the human race that we managed to put first layer money on a digital network. I mean, there is no, uh, there is nothing to study. Someone that's telling you they've studied this. How could you have studied it? It's like we invented fire or we invented electricity. It's such a new invention that um, if, if your friend said, I spent 47 hours studying Bitcoin Right. And I have the following, you know, detailed concerns about how it's going to evolve as a dominant digital asset network. And these are the things I'm worried about. Maybe it would be a constructive conversation. But um, I, I think that most people don't they don't even understand yet that it's a digital monetary network. They don't even know there's a class of such a thing. It's the first such thing in the history of the ra- of the human race. So. So I've created the ability to manifest property in cyberspace using strong encryption. And I have decentralized that network such that no company or no CEO or no country can be a point of failure, right? This is, this is um, a first in the human race. The, you know, this is a fire in cyberspace that's, that's burning with a trillion dollars of energy, it's the fastest growth to a trillion dollars of any digital network in the history of the world, 12 years. And so if you embrace that and you say, okay, I've got two things going on here. I have a macro. I've, this is the first time in 30 years that the money supply, the, the broad money supply in the U.S. and Europe is all linked and all, and all collapsing at a rate north of 20%. We didn't have this, not in your lifetime, not in my lifetime. The last time we got something similar, this is 1980, but, and before in the 70s. But in the 70s, you had a bunch of different central banks, the German bank, the French bank, the U.S. bank. The U.S. was not the world current. It was like 30% of the currency trades in the 1980s. It wasn't 90%. So we had the formation of the EU. The EU tied all of European currency to the dollar. That became 90% of all the currency. Every other central bank tied in the dollar. So we arrive in a period in the last 12 months where, where the behavior of the U.S. Fed and the expansion of the M2 money supply is, in essence, weakening every currency on earth at the same time. You've only got three sets of currencies. You've got the strong currencies weakening at the same rate as the dollar, you've, and that's like 20 rich countries. Then you've got, um, you've got most currencies weakening 20 to 40% more against the dollar. 
And then you've got the last basket of currencies weakening 80% or more against the dollar. They're utterly collapsing. And so you have a macroeconomic circumstance we've never seen in our lifetime. And then you have a technology, the most disruptive technology of our life, more disruptive than Google, than Facebook, more disruptive than YouTube, more disruptive than Zoom, more disruptive than, than the iPhone. It took uh, Google 22 years to get to a trillion. It took Amazon 24 years to get to a trillion. It took Apple 42 years to get to a trillion. It took Microsoft 44 years to get to a trillion. It took Bitcoin 12. It's a, it, it's a monetary fire. It's burning in cyberspace. And these two things together, you know, by the way, how do you feed a monetary fire with money? How more money than ever, the money is feeding the fire, right? And anybody living in a comfortable environment with a business strategy that worked last year, right? They're going to be late to understand this because they haven't had this jarring realization that there's something fundamentally different. By the way, if you lived in Argentina or you lived in Lebanon and your currency, like let's take Lebanon, it collapses overnight by 80%. And if someone handed you an iPhone and said, you can put Bitcoin on this and you won't be broke and starving tomorrow, you would have an incentive to learn about this new technology because your entire world crashed around your head. But if you're living in a world where it, you think you just made 30% return on your portfolio, you don't quite have the same appreciation of the problem. Yeah, go ahead, Sam. So you, you, it, it almost is, it's almost like rooted in the decision to do all of this is definitely shareholder stuff, shareholder value. But a lot of it was like rooted like, well, I just want to attract great talent. Um, or that was definitely a, a factor. How has... How many people work there now? 2,000? 2,000. How, how has this impacted your ability to recruit and retain people? It's, and, it's been and, great and, for retention. And it's been great for recruiting. We can get we, we get p- people. First of all, the company's brand has been amped up by a factor of 1,000. I mean, a lot more people know us now. And like what's the culture like now? Is it different? Just more, just happy. Bitcoin is hope. Okay. So let me say it a different way. If your family has $100,000 and you showed up you know, today and I told you it was in a bank in Lebanon and now it's 20000 but you can't spend it and it's going to zero, what's your family's morale, right? Well, it's I like mean, you're I, I, death. And if, you, if your family had 100000 in Bitcoin at the same, in the same year and I told you, oh, by the way, Bitcoin's up by 1,000% and now you have a million dollars and it's probably going to keep going up forever and you don't have to but worry about it. But it's not black and white like that. It's not black and white like that. No, it's not. Like I'm looking that. at your glass door reviews. I'm looking at the glass door reviews. Not everyone agrees. Uh, like, the, surely there's downside to this. I mean, not everyone agrees. I, I, I'm looking at, I see a lot of bad reviews and every great company has a lot of bad reviews, but it's not black and white that everyone agrees. I mean, you have a 43% review uh, on Glassdoor. I know that Glassdoor isn't the full picture, but it's clear that not everyone agrees with your opinion. I and I want to know. That, is, is, that, is that only stats for the past six months? Uh, I think no, you, no there's, is, a, there's a thousand reviews and it's been, uh, been up there. It, isn't it for the past decade? 
Um, but I can sort by date, so I can I can tell you a, a number by any. You could just I could set it by uh, any constraint. Right now, it's uh, all so one thousand reviews with, and it's and it's a low review. Um, and I and it, so it doesn't seem yeah, that everyone agrees with is, you. So you're looking at the past ten years, and if you go back over the past ten years, we had a, we had one point where the company was contracting and we laid off employees, and so. So no, I'm looking at reviews all from 2020. There's, I think, it, truth, it, truth it, be told, no, nobody gives a shit about Glassdoor reviews, right? Like you know, that's, I do. nobody really does. I think that there, I think there's two. No, no matter how thin the pancake, there's always two sides. But there's bits of truth in all of it, right? You could, you could gain understand. trends. So what, what is the do? You, what is the point you would like to make, and what shall we discuss? What I want to know is is what's been the downside of this because it's not black and white that everyone agrees with you um it's not black and white that like this has been perfect sam can i ask you a question in a slightly different way i think i get what you're you're trying to say so it's not not necessarily oh have people disagreed with you because right now also you look like a genius you bought the thing the brand is up the stock is up the bitcoin price is up like if you really disagree now this is your own personal problem at this point the strategy has clearly worked up till now the question is more that Hey, we've had periods of time. I've been holding Bitcoin since 2013, 2014, and I've seen Bitcoin go down, you know, 70, 80% drawdowns. And you have basically uh, taken out a bunch of debt. You bought Bitcoin. You own $5 billion of Bitcoin. The majority of the company's value is the Bitcoin that it, the assets that it owns. And if we do see, I, I think we, we kind of agree volatility will dampen over time, but that doesn't mean we can't see a drawdown like that again. What happens when Bitcoin price? Drops by fifty percent again. Um, you know, what's your reaction to that? How you know how does that affect your strategy, or what's your overall viewpoint of this possibility? Well, that's that, not that, that. That's not the exactly downside of his strategy, question. right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. On a day to day level at the company, I sound. I imagine there's a ton of people that love this, but what is what has been any of the downsides of this? Because with every great decision, there's always going to be downsides as well as upsides. I can't see any downside for the employees. They've all benefited. I can't see any downside for the investors that stayed with us. They've all benefited. Right? I mean, there are critics out there that don't like Bitcoin. And by the way, there are people that will say, you're a CEO, you shouldn't invest. You know, there there are people that will say operating companies shouldn't have assets. Right there's a like a there's criticism. People say, "Well, you're a CEO. You should go back to your cubicle and write software and leave the investing to the professionals." But I think that the the fundamental elephant in the room here is that the macroeconomic environment is so incredibly unfair to people without assets. Like literally, if you're an operating company or a Main Street company, you have to work thirty percent harder to stand still. And if you're a Wall Street company, you can stand still and get 30% more. Like the, the playing field is so tilted in favor of property owners or asset holders against manufacturers and, and companies that, that do things that you, you can't really be successful in business unless you have assets as part of your strategy. And so, so, okay, so me and Sam were asking different questions. Sam wanted to know more about the morale. I want to know if we do see another Bitcoin, you know, crash, draw, draw down 50%, 60%, uh, what happens to your position and uh, what happens to your, your point of view? 
Well, we, we, we have permanent capital, so it doesn't make a difference to us, right? Like right now, for example, we have a $3 billion investment gain. So if you cut Bitcoin in half, we would still have an investment gain, right? I mean, our basis is 24000 So if it goes down to less than 24000 and stays there forever, then it will have not been a good investment, I suppose. But otherwise, we, we've got a long-term strategy, which is you buy it and hold it. And, and I think that a lot of people live in fear of volatility, but a lot of people live in fear of a lot of things, right? If, you're, if you have enough fear, you won't leave your house. You won't right. do anything. And so you have to have a bit of courage and conviction. I, I can give you a thousand reasons why I think it makes sense to invest in Bitcoin. I, I can't give you any reason why why I should be afraid to do a rational thing. So, you know, it, do, it doesn't really bother me, right? There's This is a rational strategy. If I had it to do all over again, would I? Of course I would, <laughs> right? Ask all the investors that made billions and billions of dollars, you know, over the time frame, right? Of, of course you would do it again. Uh, and I think we're gonna we're gonna have to wrap uh, based on time. So appreciate you coming on. Uh, do you want to leave anybody with a way to way to find you, a place to follow, a place to take a next step if they you know liked what they heard? Sure. If you're interested in Bitcoin, Bitcoin is hope. So go to h o p e hope dot com. We have lots of information in it. If you want to follow me, I'm uh, Michael underscore Sailor on Twitter. How, how much do you think Bitcoin.com is worth? Roger Ver owns it now. How much would you be paying for Bitcoin.com? I don't know. I, <laughs> I wouldn't speculate. I wouldn't speculate. You know, I think for most people, a lot of what you're saying, I think is going to be uh, over their heads that listen to this, to be, to be perfectly honest with you. Um, I think, it, but, but I could distill it down into a very simple, a simple way of looking at it for anybody that listened to this and they were intrigued, but they didn't know, they haven't, you know, sort of gone down the rabbit hole yet, which is, very simply, if guys like Michael Saylor, who own public companies that um, have a ton of money, are worried about what they're going to do because their money is melting, uh, and they're looking for, you know, investment grade, you know, uh, sort of uh, the, the most powerful treasury asset, and he's decided it's Bitcoin, and uh, you know, Square has put some money in, PayPal has put money in, um, Tesla has put a billion and a half dollars into into Bitcoin. Um, it's likely that there are more companies out there and it'll take them six months to a year to make this move, but they will take a portion of their treasury reserves and they'll move it into Bitcoin. And these are long-term holders. These are not retail day traders that are going to be you know, buying and selling the thing like crazy. So uh, the real simple thing is you can sort of invest into the network. You can buy Bitcoin yourself and you can front run the institutions that are coming. Uh, that was a very simple very simple thesis, a very simple takeaway for somebody who's listening to this. If you're a company, you better be thinking about what you're going to do with the cash. If you're an individual person, you should also be thinking about what you're going to do with your cash. And the easy move is that for once, you get to front run the institutions and you get to get in before they all get in, whereas typically the retail investor is last. I, I think that's a, it's a, a reasonable thing to say. I agree with it. Another big picture way to say it is there's $100 trillion of treasury assets that have a negative real yield of minus 10 to minus 15% a year. That means they're, they're destroying $10 trillion a year of value. The solution is convert all of that money into Bitcoin 
Bitcoin's a trillion dollar asset. The, you know, people that understand Bitcoin think it's going to grow to become the ten trillion dollar asset that gold is, and then it's going to replace negative yielding sovereign debt and then corporate debt, and and ultimately it will become the primary treasury reserve network and treasury reserve asset. And so if you have a company, if you're an investor, it makes sense to buy it because it's got a brilliant future and it solves a problem that everybody on earth has. And if you're a company, it makes sense to plug your treasury into Bitcoin because the road to serfdom is working exponentially harder for a currency growing exponentially weaker, right? You're just going to work yourself to death. You know, put yourself in a position of working as hard as you can in Venezuela or Argentina or Zimbabwe and roll the clock forward a decade and ask yourself the question, what do you wish you did? And the answer is protect your assets, protect your, your monetary energy, your treasury by putting it into a scarce asset in a bank and cyberspace where no one can steal it, debase it or destroy it. And, and that's the Bitcoin ethos. We're simply trying to we're trying to make it worthwhile to do the other stuff. There's no point in doing a hundred million other things if at the end of the journey, you've got nothing to show for it. Yeah. Why, why create all the value if you cannot store it? So here's a better store of value. value. Yeah. But that's the big idea. And that's, and that's a business strategy for everybody. Small, medium, large, doesn't matter. And, you know, I'm just kind of anticipating somebody hears this and they say, but we're not Argentina. We're not Venezuela. Do I really need to worry about this? And what's your answer to that? My answer is the single most important thing for you to to have in your life is a forecast for the money supply expansion in your country for the next eight years. So I would say that before you invest the next decade of your life doing whatever, stop and study up on macroeconomics and form an opinion about the rate at which your currency is going to lose economic energy. And then you can act accordingly. If you think that the currency is going to hold, by the way, the currency has never held, it's lost 6% of its value every year forever, right? It's always losing 6% of its value. You just have to decide for the next decade whether or not the cost of capital is going to be 8, 12, 16 or 20. And once you make that decision, that will inform you with regard to with what what degree of enthusiasm will you pursue a, a hard asset strategy. If you think that the if you think that the currency is going to weaken rapidly, then you would shift uh, you would um, you would shift and prioritize hard asset strategy and hard asset acquisition um, aggressively. And if you think that the currency is going to not weaken that rapidly, you would prioritize other strategies, right? And you'd, everybody's got to make that decision for themselves. But when, you know, when Zimbabwe started to crash, normal companies, management consulting companies started buying lumber and coal and oil and anything they could buy because at least you'll still have it tomorrow, whereas the cash, the currency, the receivables will be worth nothing. So you just have to make that decision. We can't, there's plenty of information in the world for you to form your own opinion. Once you've formed your opinion, then, then uh, you can act accordingly. Cool. All right, Michael, thank, thank you for you coming for having on. Me, gentlemen. Yeah, we appreciate it. This is great. Um, thank you. Yeah. Uh, we just, 
did this interview with Michael. What's his sailor or Sa- the L, right? And no, I mean, I wouldn't try to sailor or sailor without an L. Recap it and then explain your opinion. But first, objectively, okay. try to recap it. Objectively, uh, we had this guy on. Uh, he's objectively successful financially. Uh, objectively, a wonderful businessman. He came on for. He he t- said ahead of time his objective for this interview was to promote Bitcoin, which that's cool. We could talk about that for a bit. That uh, we, I'm down with that. I wanted to ask him a little bit more beyond that, but we didn't get to it. And he talked for 60 plus minutes all about this topic. And I personally pressed him on a few topics, and he disagreed with me. And my vibe, this is no, all right. We're past the objective part. My vibe from this was, uh, I don't trust. I don't trust his opinion. Okay, so I'll give you my two cents, and then we'll we'll, we'll just talk about it real quick. So. I just was, I thought he came on just kind of low energy slash maybe like kind of arrogant. I don't know, smug a little bit, not in a bad way, but I think at the beginning we were clearly trying to like warm him up, just talk to him about something. And he had zero interest in, uh, in chatting about, uh, anything besides the virtues of Bitcoin. And so that was a little bit, I don't know, just personally a little off putting, I guess. Like I, I find it more fun when a guest comes on and there's somebody that, you leave the podcast being like, man, I want to, I'd love to hang with that person more. Um, I think that's a great sign for the guest. And I think in this case, you know, I didn't walk away with that feel. Uh, I agree with all the things you said objectively. He's super smart, you know, literally a rocket scientist who built a billion dollar company by the time, you know, a $10 billion company by the time he was 34, you know, from 24 to 34, he built a $10 billion company, has been running it for 30 years as a public company CEO, went into Bitcoin heavy and has made $3 billion in Bitcoin. Like the guy is definitely a smart guy. And I think ahead of the curve in many ways, I've read his book, the mobile wave, which he wrote 2012, basically saying that mobile's going to like mobile's going to destroy everything. And um, which in 2012 was a sort of safe prediction, but uh, still a good prediction. Nonetheless, I don't agree with you that he was like, what'd you say? Like not trustworthy or something. So explain. Well, and let me just say this is, this is a, a knee-jerk reaction, so I don't want my opinions certainly evolving as as it's going. And and I've Sean, you've talked about him all the time, so that was my experience to him. I read his Wikipedia page, and I probably watched the top two or three interviews. So that's that that's my experience. I don't want to say distrusting, but there was something about it. So in the interview, I questioned him about something silly. Not not silly. I don't think it's silly. Sean thinks it's silly, and that's okay. I understand why someone thinks that. I I said your glass door reviews are pretty shitty like recently. Um Well, no, you asked even more more reasonable question. You said it's all been okay, great, bitcoins up. This is your stock prices up, but like what have been the downsides? Which I think is a perfectly reasonable question to ask. And he was just like, "Well, there are no downsides." And I was like, "Well, that's like objectively false because at, there's there there's some people they could, they're anonymous and and it's Glassdoor, so that doesn't hold a ton of weight. But there's a lot of people in your reviews that say that this is crazy and that your products are failing and you're doing this to distract that. Like, what are the downsides? And he, I think he he kind of dodged the question and I couldn't get the truth out of him. And because of that, I'm like. If I can't trust something so obvious, or if someone can't give me a straight answer on something I feel is so obvious of saying like, yeah, look, there's a ton of upside, which I've discussed, but here's some of the downsides. Then in my head, I'm like, well, I, can I believe anything you're saying? Right. Once you, are, um, once you are not reasonable or rational about one thing, I can't fully think you're reasonable and rational about this other thing that you're telling me about. That's kind of what you're saying. How you and do anything think- is how you do everything. 
And, and I also think that anyone who brags about how rational they are are some of the least rational people. Um, I don't. Which, th- by the I way, I don't it, think he bragged about it. I think it's like when you ask him, you know, this person yeah, says he, this bad thing about it. He's like, well, I just think it's a clear because of this. This is true. That's a rational thing, in my opinion. I don't think he was saying. Yeah, he he he, he never rational. claimed. He never said that. Correct. But he said like, well, this is this is an incredibly rational decision. I don't see downsides. And I'm like, well we're naturally so, not rational. I'll, I'll defend like, his, I'll defend, I, by the way, I spent most of the podcast basically, even though I'm a huge Bitcoin bull, I spent most of the podcast bringing up things that a critic of his strategy and a critic of Bitcoin would say just because I wanted to hear his answers. But in general, like I get what he's saying that, look, we bought $2 billion worth of Bitcoin. It's gained $3 billion more. Our stock price is up, I don't know, 4X since we made this strategy change and you're asking me like, how do my employees feel? Like they feel great. Our brand just went up a thousand X. People know what micro strategy is now. They didn't know what the hell it was before. Um, our stock price is up. Our assets are, are have we've gained a lot more value in our assets. So what are you talking? He was basically like, there's no downside. That's all upside. So I get that, but he didn't, uh, you know, give you the inch that I think most most reasonably people would do was just to say that, yeah, everything has its trade-offs. Maybe like it w- he could have said it was really complicated to go through the process of being the first public company to make this huge Bitcoin purchase. And so that was a huge, just, you know, l- regulatory and legal, you know, like mess we had to walk work through, but I'm glad we did. Or like, you know, there's always some people in the company that disagree with the decision. And so they, you know, they haven't, you know, they're no longer with us or, you know, They've had to get on board with something that they didn't see as was the right decision. And that's always tough. Whenever you have strong-minded people, you're not all going to 100% agree with a radical strategy. He could have said any of those things. He didn't. But that doesn't make me personally distrust him. I think for you, that was a turnoff. I, I don't want to... I, like I said before, the, this is a, all knee jerk. It just happened. I, I so I want to be careful of my words. If I said distrust, I, I actually... Ret- I, I take that back. I don't entirely mean distrust. Yeah. But I, I mean that there's something going on that I had this gut feeling that um, I can't just believe what you're saying. And I want to go and, and this should be the case all the time. I I want to go learn on my own. Right. I think it's all pretty above board, which is that he's basically bet his entire company on Bitcoin. Now they own $5 billion of Bitcoin. The company's worth $7 billion and Bitcoin, you know, so obviously, and he, his objective, his stated objective to us coming on was to communicate the nature and virtues of Bitcoin to the audience and leave them excited about the opportunities that Bitcoin offers. So he wasn't, there was no bait and switch. He said what he wanted to do. He tried to do that. Um, yep. And it's clear that he is incentivized for more people, companies, and, and individuals to buy Bitcoin because he is maybe the largest holder of Bitcoin in the world. Uh, I, don't know what Sato- I don't know what Satoshi's stake is worth now. Uh, maybe check that out. Is, does he have more Bitcoin than Satoshi? He, he, I don't think so. I think but he said, I think he he might said be in the podcast uh, $3 billion at one point. His $3 billion is his gain. He own, they own $5 billion worth. So uh, what is Satoshi's statement? Either way, he's one of the top five Bitcoin whales in the world. He clearly wants Bitcoin to go up and wants more people to adopt it. To me, that's like you got to have a natural discount of what somebody's saying when it comes to um, when they're highly, highly incentivized for you to invest in that same thing. That doesn't mean he's wrong or he's like doing anything dishonest. It's like you just have to know that, hey, this guy's clearly... He believes it. He has high conviction, and he has an incentive to make other people believe it too. Abreu, what did you think? <laughs> I mean, I think 
I Abreu is just quaking in fear right now. No, say what I, you really want to say. Let's let's not let's not uh, okay, not say well, what we I will believe. say that I, for the most part, agree with what you guys said. I mean, talking about Michael himself, like super intelligent but professorial. He like he doesn't make for a great guess. And you see this on other podcasts as well. Like when Joe Rogan has like some world-renowned, like super intelligent, like scientists on. Sometimes they're you know they're they they just want to go on about their field and their studies and. Um, so they, those don't make for the best guess. So I'll say that. Um, yeah, which is kind of sad because, uh, you know, from my point of view, uh, my, my I, I, I guess we both walked away from the podcast feeling a little disheartened or I don't know, like whatever. Uh, we didn't, we didn't feel like we, we had a slam dunk. Um, I think you for a different reason than me, for me, it was just, I didn't think it was highly entertaining for people. And I, I'm kind of bummed about that because I actually think it's a super fucking, I think he's a super fucking interesting guy, has had a super interesting life and business story. And also what he's doing with Bitcoin, I think is super interesting. So somehow, despite there being an underlying like substance that is super interesting, I don't think it got communicated. I almost wish I could just do a Billy of the Week segment, just explaining everything I know about Michael Saylor doing the research to this interview. I think that would be way more entertaining than what actually happened when he came on was basically talking about quite technical, you know, economically technical terms that I think for most people, they're not going to resonate with. It's not going to click and doing it in a way that was sort of like, it didn't feel like somebody who um, uh, was trying to break it down and make it more accessible. It was just like, this, it is what it is. And I can sort of explain it in bits and pieces to you if you want. And if you don't see it, you're crazy, you know? One of the best parts was towards the end, Sean, when you like took a few minutes and kind of explained what we just talked about on a high level i thought that was like the easiest part to digest of the whole thing and more that should have been more of what the podcast was and unfortunately it wasn't and it wasn't for a lack of research as far as like the interview not being that great like we put you guys put a ton of of research into this um i think sometimes just the guest personality doesn't make for the the best podcast well, I think people can listen to it. Uh, it's an hour long. I I, I want to say I appreciate him coming on. Michael is a big deal. Uh, uh, I I definitely appreciate him coming on. I'm gonna. I want to. I definitely want to take back. Like you know the whole. I don't <laughs> trust him entirely, but uh, the, there's something sitting there's after that interview. There's something sitting right where something inside him is like, uh, something is going on here, and I got to figure out what it is. Um. Maybe we can have him on another time now that we kind of like know him a little bit more. But uh, <laughs> yeah, I'm sure can for themselves. You know, th- actually, it'll be kind of interesting because we're going to leave this in. By the way, like the, whatever our discussion about it, and I hope I hope it kind of gets received as what it is. This is a instant hot take reaction to something that we were really excited about. Then it happened. We're giving a quick reaction. I think uh, you know Sam basically uh, didn't see the the kind of the Bitcoin bull case as black and white as maybe Michael no, Saylor put first it. First of all. Like, for, let me just say that I, what I, my opinion of him is totally separate of Bitcoin. I would say I'm a, I'm a, right. I'm a huge novice. I, I'm not an expert, but uh, I felt that he was actually, uh, he, he was a poor representation of it because there's something about it that I'm like, oh, I don't know if I could trust this, right? Yeah, because so, so he's you, representing it. You weren't buying what he was selling. I don't know. I don't know how to put it, but uh, nothing, yeah. no attack on his character. You just didn't walk away from listening to the guy for the hour, and you didn't fully. Um, buy-in. And like we do sometimes with certain guests where they start to explain what's going on in their field or their business and we walk away saying, 
shit, that guy knows what he's talking about. And like, I totally agree with the way the world is going and I want to invest in that guy's company. You know, that's sometimes the way we feel. He um, didn't persuade me. It, it, if that was his goal, I don't think it, I don't think goal was not achieved. Can I give people the like, I'm going to, can I try a three minute like Billy of the Week segment on this guy real quick? This is your podcast. You do what you want. Yeah, go for it. Oh, I mean, are, are you interested? I don't know if you're interested. Okay. Yeah, so let no, me no, just no, do it. Do it. Do it. Here's, here's, okay. Michael Saylor to me is, uh, you know, more than the Billy of the Week. He might be the Billy of the Month. Uh, okay. So here's some cool things about him that I, I found doing some research for this. So the guy's a badass. He, you know, graduates first in his class in high school, valedictorian. He's voted most likely to succeed. He goes to MIT on a like, you know, ROTC, you know, scholarship. He goes to the Air Force. He wants to be kind of like a fighter pilot. And, um, you know, eventually, like, you know, he, I think for whatever reason, he, he wasn't going to be able to be a fighter pilot. I think some, he didn't pass one of the physicals or something like that. Um, and so he's like, you know, cause they have a very strict requirement for that. So anyways, he decides at 20, uh, he's, he's, he's working at DuPont. I don't know if you knew this part, Sam, he's, he works at DuPont when he's like right out of uh, college, basically. And he's doing simulations for DuPont and DuPont's trying to make a billion dollar decision. Should we invest in this or not? And if anybody's been in a big company, you know, that when an executive is trying to make a case for when the executive wants to do something, it's sort of their pet project. They don't really want the simulation to be this really objective case of pros and cons. They're kind of just want some data to support what they already want to do. So they can go get a billion dollars of funding to go do the thing they want. And so he builds the simulation and the simulation basically says, don't do it. And, and anyways, he, he ends up just like leaving DuPont. He's like, I don't know why the hell I'm at this company. They just, they didn't even want the results of the simulation. They just wanted me to say what needed to be said so that some executive could go pitch their case. So I'm leaving this place. And the executive is basically like, Hey, where's that kid who's doing that model? I need that data. And he's like, um, he's like, and they're like, he left the company. He quit. And so the guy's like, go hire him back. Give him what he wants. And so they go to him and they say, hey, we want to hire you back and we'll give you more money. And he's like, oh, I don't really want to work there, so I don't want more money. And then the executive's like, give him more. We'll give him what is it, whatever he wants. Just give it to him. And he's like, well, I kind of want to start my own company. So why don't we do this? You give me a quarter million dollars and I want to hire some of my colleagues from DuPont. I want to hire eight to 10 people from there. And um, I want you to be my first customer. So I want you to give me you know, a few million dollars worth of contracts to do work for you. And I'm going to start my company, MicroStrategy, which does the same simulating thing for companies. And you'll be my first customer. So pretty badass negotiation. He goes and in, instead of being an employee, he basically gets DuPont to seed fund his company and become a multi-million dollar customer for him. So from there, he's 24 years old. That's MicroStrategy, how it starts. Basically what they do is like what's called business intelligence or executive intelligence. They, they take all the data you have. So like, your Victoria's Secret. You have all this data of purchasing and all your stores all across the country. MicroStrategy goes in and says, hey, you're carrying the wrong sizes. You, you need bigger bras in Chicago than in New York. You're, so if you rebalance your inventory, you're going to save all this money. And uh, there's data. You're, you're sitting on this gold mine of data. You just don't know how to analyze it. We can give you intelligence from this data. So he does that for McDonald's and for Victoria's Secret and all these different companies. By 34, He's a billionaire. The company's public. It's worth $11 billion. He owns the majority of the company. He owns over 50%. And he's doing his thing. Now, over time, 2003, 2004, stock price crashes from $333 a share to 42 cents a share or something like that. And you know, he goes through that whole transition. He's been the CEO of MicroStrategy for like 30 years. Like literally, I was born in 1988. Sam's born in 1989. He's been the CEO of MicroStrategy since 1989. You know, like that's pretty, pretty wild. And more recently, like, you know, MicroStrategy has been flat for like a decade. Stock price not really going anywhere. 
business is profitable. He's got $500 million of cash in the bank, but the stock price is not growing. And he's like... $500 million, I think, personally, he said. Uh, no, no, I think in this case, it was the corporate treasury who had about $500, $600 million. He owns the majority of the company. I think he owns currently like... No, I, I, think, I think in the podcast, he was like, I have... Whatever, he, he's basically, he was incredibly wealthy and the company was great. He's incredibly wealthy and the company's incredibly wealthy. And he basically comes to this realization during the COVID crash. And he's talked about this on other podcasts, which is he comes to this realization that, um, wait a minute, if the money supply, you know, we hear about government stimulus, we hear governments printing $2 trillion, $6 trillion, $13 trillion total. Um, the money supply is increasing, which means if you had $500 million in the bank, if you go back and look, it'll still say $500 million, but it won't be able to buy you as much as it did before because there's all this new, trillions of new dollars in the, in the, in the, in the, uh, in the money supply. And similarly, like uh, people have been wondering during COVID, wait a minute, all the businesses are shut down and people are locked in their homes. Why are all the stock prices at like all-time highs? What's this disconnect between Main Street and Wall Street? And what he's pointing out, I think rightfully so, is that when you have all this money printing, assets inflate, basically assets like companies inflate. So that's why the stock prices are going up. It's not that, you know, um, Zoom or, you know, Zoom is a bad example. It's not that Apple is making all, all this much more money than they were three months ago. It's that Apple stock is more of a hard asset to own uh, versus own just keeping cash and dollars, which is getting printed and diluted essentially by the government, right? So long story short, MicroStrategy goes out and they they basically do this aggressive, aggressive, um, aggressive strategy to buy a quarter billion dollars of Bitcoin. They're kind of the first public company to go do such a bold bet. And then he keeps buying Bitcoin um, more and more and more. He's basically bought $2 billion of Bitcoin. So first he took all the money they have, the majority of the money they have, and they bought Bitcoin with it. Um, and, it and he first announced it and he told his shareholders, look, we're going to buy a bunch of Bitcoin with our cash. If you don't want to hold our shares, we'll buy your shares back from you if you don't like that strategy. So they bought $60, $70 million back. They use the rest of the cash to buy Bitcoin. Then he starts issuing debt. He goes and he raises $500 million. He goes and raises a billion dollars of debt from the public markets, takes all that money, buys Bitcoin with it. And so since then, he's basically put in $2 billion. He's gained $3 billion. And he has a total stake of Bitcoin of $5 billion, which I think makes him, makes MicroStrategy, you know, a top five owner of Bitcoin in the world, um, you know, just behind Satoshi and maybe a couple others. And since then, you know, Famously, Elon tweeted out something about Bitcoin. Michael Saylor responded saying, hey, from one rocket scientist to another, let me show you how we, let me explain to you why we did it and you should too. And a few months later, Tesla goes and buys $1.5 billion of Bitcoin. So he's kind of was ahead of the curve on this stuff. Um, in addition to that, some other cool things early on in the dot, he sort of identified early on that the internet was going to be a big deal and bought a bunch of domains. So we spent about $2 million buying domains like alarm.com, wisdom.com, strategy.com, michael.com, mike.com, angel.com, courage, you know, hope. And he owns all these premium domains, one word, English word domains. And he has since, you know, sold or created businesses under those domains for, you know, over a hundred billion dollars. So he turned to, you know, one or two million, billion, one or two million dollars, sorry, one or two million dollar domain purchases into over a hundred million dollars of value. Um, he also has this thing called sailor.org, which is just like a free education. It's just a free university. Um, and he said, you know, it, since 1999, they've had over half a million students in it. So this guy's done a bunch of cool shit. And I think is like a pirate of the best kind, like super smart technologist, super smart business guy, 
has just been in the game for so long and is doing pretty radical things. So that's why, you know, I think this guy's a baller. Unfortunately, I didn't feel that all that came through on the podcast, but you know, I'm a fan. Well, I, I, I think Michael uh, and his team will reach out and say, thank you, Sean. Cause I think that you did an awesome job of, uh, you did a better job of showing, showing off him <laughs> than him, uh, which is cool. And, uh, I think, I think you're just, you're just better at storytelling. So maybe, the, <laughs> maybe, uh, maybe people will have a, uh, the same opinion after this interview. The, the part that I, uh, kind of was like i don't know how i feel about this it happens like probably 15 minutes left in the episode maybe a bray or someone will uh mark it uh and you guys will be able to hear for yourselves but uh i think sean you're just really good at this <laughs> and uh i guess we'll see uh th- this episode is gonna be weird it's go- i wonder what the people are gonna say i guess we'll find out yeah same all right cool I feel like I can rule the world. I know I can be what I want to. Uh, I put my all in it like no days off. On the road, let's travel, never looking back.